This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for New Books in Japanese Studies, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Ann Allison about her book, Being Dead Otherwise, which is out from Duke University Press in 2023. This book examines the changing realities of death as a personal and social phenomenon, and an opportunity for business innovation and self-deathmaking in Japan. Factors including the world's oldest population, declining birth rates, and a growing number of single households mean that more Japanese are living and dying alone. In contemporary Japan, in other words, life and death aren't what they used to be. Changed social and family structures have upended some of the foundational bonds that previously defined what it meant to live, die, care for the dead, and be cared for in your own turn. Allison explores both the proliferation of new industries, services, initiatives, voluntary communities, and businesses that have popped up in response to these changes, and also the ways in which individuals faced with uncertainty about their own deaths have begun to create and plan new ways of dying for themselves. From the massive Index Mortuary Services Industry Bonanza held annually in Japan's largest exhibition venue, to automated just-in-time columbaria with robotic priests on the one hand, and from ending notes, these anti-mortem expressions of post-mortem wishes and goodbyes, to the crematorium and the bone crusher on the other. This is a thoughtful, pragmatic, and ultimately affirming look at Japan's shifting ecology of death and its radical future potential. Okay, Dr. Allison, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Um, so as we get started in talking about your book, Being Dead Otherwise, um, you know, you've had a, a long and varied career. Uh, and this is, I think, I think it's fair to say this is not the, you know, this is new research for you. So I'm very curious how it is that you came to uh, write this, to, to get into this project and write this particular book. First, uh, Nathan, thank you so much. For inviting me. Um, it's quite an honor. And um, and I thank everyone who's listening to um, to our interview. So this is very exciting for me. Um, yeah, I'm an anthropologist, and I've been working on uh, issues pertaining to contemporary Japan for uh, a long time, since uh, the 1980s. 
And I've done a whole range of projects. As, as you know, I started in the nightlife of all things and with hostess clubs. And then I moved more to domestic labor and, uh, you know, mother and, and obentos, you know, the lunchboxes that mothers prepare for their children, uh, pornography, manga, anime, went to children's character merchandise, Pokemon and uh, Power Rangers, Sailor Moon. Then I, I became interested in the in in, in precarity and precariousness and how things started kind of shifting in Japan in the 1990s, 2000s. And as an anthropologist, I think I always let the field kind of dictate. I mean, I go there a lot and I listen to people and I try to put my you know finger out and I try to I try to sense. I mean, I think that's I mean, I'm sure you do a version of that as a historian, but as an anthropologist, I mean, we want to know how people live and what they're thinking about and how they experience life. So in part, it was then at the end of doing my my project on precariousness about 2010, 2011, 2010, I was wrapping that up and I was going to Japan and I would hang out with people. And I noticed that a lot of people were talking about where they were going to wind up at the end or that they didn't have a grave or what were they going to do? You know, their mother was aging, their father had died, but they didn't really want to use the family grave. And it wasn't just older people, as you might expect. It was middle-aged people. It was young people. And I found that curious. And since I had one of the tropes that I had been working on in my book um, on, on precariousness was the absence or loss of a sense of home. I mean, it wasn't necessarily literal, physical homelessness, but it was a sense of not feeling comfortable, not being rooted. Um, and that notion of what is a home? What does it mean to be rooted? What does it mean to feel that you belong is something I've always, I mean, I just spent a lot of time in my career thinking about that. So it struck me that when you die, there's also a home you go to, a grave. And what would it mean to be homeless at death? I mean, the idea just was kind of perplexing to me. And I became intrigued. And I, again, I, I just hadn't thought about it much myself. So uh, that that's kind of what drew me in. And then once I started exploring it, I found it utterly fascinating. I have a, a very good friend who I often stay with when I go, and she's interesting. And she said, took me into a bookstore, you know, just a local bookstore and showed me a shelf of books about shukatsu, you know, ending market. She said, well, look at this. This could be a good topic for your next research project. And she said, do you know about ending notes? I knew nothing about ending notes. She was keeping a little notebook. And I said, what is this? And she said, notes for when I die. And this was a woman who was about, you know, 58 at the time. And I said, what do you mean notes for when you die? She said, well you know, I'm alone. I'm single. I don't have any kids. I can't count on my sister who will probably die before I do anyway. My parents are dead. So I'm not sure I can rely on anyone to stage or prepare a funeral for me. And these are notes. But I also didn't know who the notes were for exactly. If no one was going to stage them. So again, these were kind of the, the interesting uh, queries and not exactly contradictions, but things that I, I, I didn't quite understand. That, uh, that that's what pulled me into the project. Yeah, that makes a, a lot of sense to me. Uh, that sort of feeling that carries over from uh, the precarity book, uh, Precarious Japan, of sort of ungroundedness, 
um, and not having a place, as you put it, a home, uh, and sort of following that out uh, to its, in some senses, logical end uh, with death, uh, and a book that you uh, say, which this is an interesting, was an interesting word for me, you describe it as a necrosociology uh, of, uh, for contemporary Japan. Um, you know, and, and this actually, uh, it goes to uh, one of my original sort of interests in Japan, which was the, I, I guess you would say the culture of, of death and, and commemoration. Um, and that reciprocal relationship between the living and the dead, where it's important to have the living caring for the deceased, um, as you, you know, through visiting the grave and all sorts of other things. But um, that connection between the living and, and dead, as you noted, is tenuous is precarious uh, if I if I could coin a phrase um, these days in Japan um, and one of the things that you point out in the book is that that's a system that's been under stress for decades now at least since the end of the war but perhaps uh, that is accelerating uh, due to social and demographic changes uh, these days um, with that in mind, I wonder if you could tell us uh, about the otherwise in the book's title, uh, which again is being dead otherwise, um, and also about the three big overarching themes that you describe uh, for your exploration of anxieties around death. And those are the care for the disconnected, the stranded, the lonely dead, which we've been talking about, self-death making, uh, which you mentioned in terms of the ending notes, um, and then one which we haven't touched on yet, I guess, which is the necroanimism. Okay, so that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean that. Thank you, Nathan. That's that's so well said. And you're right that not only in Japan, but really every place around the world, every culture from you know, from from a long time past. I mean, I I don't know when these death rituals started. People say you know as much as twenty thousand years ago, but probably before, and that marking the dead, commemorating the dead somehow is one of those, you know, markers of a certain sense of humanity. You you don't simply discard the, the dead remains. You pay attention to the living who have now died and they're no longer, they're no longer physically present, but you keep them alive. And um, that is one of the meanings of otherwise. You 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 otherwise, I mean they're not alive existentially ontologically they're dead they're not they're not with us anymore but you make a place you make a home amongst the living so that you don't quite forget those people who predeceased you and um, i'm sure some animals you know mark the dead most animals don't and so you know people have said philosophers and um, religious scholars and everyday people have noticed and paid attention to this as being incredibly important. I mean, a lot of places, death rituals are almost more important than anything. And they, um, an anthropologist, sociologist like Emil Durkheim, who, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time reading when I was a graduate student, and one of his students, Robert Ertz, who wrote one of the seminal books about death rituals among the Dyak of Borneo, has said that when you lose a physical member of your community, there's a rip in the social, there's a tear, there's a wound. And it needs to be repaired, not only because this person is no longer there, so there's maybe mourning, but also the social itself has to be kind of restitched. And he says you do it as much for the living 
maybe you do it more for the living than you do for the dead because there, there's a vitality that needs to be um, regenerated. And so that death rituals are a way of honoring the dead and also resubscribing to the people who are gonna continue to live. And so the otherwise in part is how do you formulate that? That the otherwise to actually physically being present, but then the other meaning that I try to incorporate by using that word is that when we die, um, well, we can't bury ourselves. Um, it's like when you get born, you have to rely on a set of other hands. I mean, Judith Butler, the, the literary scholar and, and philosopher, calls it social hands. I mean, we come into the world and we leave the world, and in many junctures while we're still living, we're critically tied to other people. And if we don't have those ties, we die. I mean, we can't make it if you're sick and you're immobile. And, and so you rely upon an other to literally take care of your corpse. I mean, you can't bury yourself. And if there's gonna be any sort of memorialization or uh, commemoration, being grieving, whatever that would be, you have to rely on other people to do that. And so I see now, uh, I don't know if it's a crisis, but as you say, there's there's a change in the organization of social living in Japan. It used to be three generation families. And then after the war, there was an incredible urban migration. People went to the cities and they downsized. Instead of living in these big farmhouses, now you're living in Danchi. You're living in high rise and you have 2DK or 3DK. And you're living as a nuclear family. And that was a really important part of corporate capitalism, the way that Japan bounced back and got back on its feet and, and, and then became incredibly successful with double digit industrial growth was to make people very productive and very consumer oriented around the nuclear family. So again, back to home, my homeism, my home shugi was also a way of kind of reorganizing the sociality and not exactly breaking ties to the countryside where the family home used to be and where the ancestral grave usually still is. Not exactly break ties, but now you're concentrating much more of your energy and your time and your labor on what you're doing now. I mean, you're working incredibly hard and, um, and all of that, I think, worked kind of okay through the 70s and the 80s. And then with the bursting of the bubble economy in the 90s, well, then that thing started to shift. Instead of having lifetime employment and longtime marriages and staying in the same neighborhood forever, you know, the whole sense of temporality started shifting. And so now you have a different kind of organization. And with that, I mean, again, is it a crisis or is it a juncture? I mean, certainly a juncture that the old forms of sociality are, are kind of falling apart. And this has implications for how you take care of the dead. I mean, who's often, you know, the rates of, of marriage and childbirth are, are going way down. The number of single households are up to about one third. A lot of people are living and dying alone. They don't have children. And- a lot of cemeteries in Japan still insist that you have a successor. You have to have the primary mourner. If you don't have a successor, you can't be buried there. So where are you going to go? So there's a lot of strandedness and there's a lot of, so, so all of that being dead otherwise is my, my question is what does it mean to take care of the dead when the, what, what had been pretty normative and conventional, you rely on your patrilineal kin to do that. You, you can't, you don't have those kin anymore, 
or those kin are too busy. You know, it's expensive to go back to the countryside once or twice at Obon and Oshokatsu and, you know, at the equinoxes and on the anniversaries of death. It's expensive to go back. It's expensive to maintain a grave. So some people have families, but they, they can't afford it. So the whole system of mortuary care based around a patrilineal system of family is not really sustainable anymore. So then the question is, what's happening to that? Are there alternative ways of taking care of the dead? So the three, the three themes that I'm interested in kind of theoretically, analytically is one, what happens to those people who are kinless or they're stranded? And it's certainly not the first time in history, in Japanese history, that there are people who are excluded. And we could talk about that. There's always been people who've been excluded. You know, there are always people who don't make it into the patrilineal line. They're second sons, the system of primogenitor. Really, you, you need to be a first son to be buried in the family grave. If you're a second or third son, you're supposed to build your own family grave. If you're a woman, you're supposed to go into the, the grave of your husband's family. Well, if you get a divorce, your name now has changed. You can't go to your home family. You can't go into your, your husband's family. You're stranded. You know, after the war, a lot of women hadn't gotten married. Where are they going to go? I mean, so exclusion is not a totally new thing. And it's hardly a new thing around the world. I mean, as we, we know only too well, all over the world, you know, migrant, you know, with global migrant rates, you know, skyrocketing, there are a lot of people who are stranded when they die. And sometimes their bodies are never recovered and they're never sent home. And so this is an issue that I think has um, resonance and uh, relevance far beyond Japan is what happens to the stranded. So that's one issue. The second issue is what I call self-death making. And one of the most innovative um, discoveries in my research was in the face of what could be precariousness at death and is precariousness for people also is an opportunity to remake how you do death. And what I found is that a lot of people are taking the ball in their own hands and they're designing their own arrangements. They're, um, they're spending a lot of time, you know, going to workshops and symposium and they're making plans for how they're going to be buried. And a lot of it is also, as you can imagine, with, you know, the trend towards neoliberalization, it's also the responsibility is yours, self-responsibility, but the choice is yours. You can do it any way you want to. Customize it, do it in your own way. Make it, do it the way you want to. So there's also kind of interesting creativeness around, okay, so I used to have to think about my mother-in-law. Now I'm going to think about me. And um, that was one of my discoveries, which was kind of interesting. And the third thematic is, is what I call necroanimism. And maybe we can talk about that. Um, uh, uh, later in the interview, but also one of the interesting, I mean, there's a lot of animation, I think, around death making, um, so necro-animism, but also some of this is getting outsourced to new kinds of apparatus like uh, automated graves in urban Japan, automated columbaria, that you put the ashes or the urns in kind of one a warehouse, which is one part of the, the, the building. There are a few graves. If anyone comes to visit, your ashes in 40 seconds are going to go from the warehouse to the grave. And, you know, totally new. But also, if no one ever comes to bury you, your ashes are still in a beautiful, a beautiful place. And the Buddhist priest on duty will do 
Kuyo will, will honor your ashes so you won't be stranded. And I find that very interesting that you now could save your soul and you can make arrangements before you die. I don't have any kids. I don't have a partner. I don't know what's going to happen to me. I'll sign up for this. No problem. I don't have to worry while I'm still alive that I might become a stranded dead because I'm going to go to that facility. And even if no one comes to visit me, the priest is going to take care of me. And, um, so that's just kind of interesting. So um, that's what I call necroanics. Yeah, I thought this was um, a, a really nice uh, introduction to the ways in which uh, your book, looking at death and the sort of death industry, uh, um, reflect a great deal about the changes in um, the nature of intimacy uh and how that has also as you say um created spaces for innovation and imagination and a certain kind of um self-actualization right uh that there are things that are sort of you know being blown apart and at the same time that is creating a kind of maybe it is as you say potentially a crisis, but at the same time, that crisis is um, creating opportunities for new ways to think about uh, how you fit into not just society when you're alive, but sort of on, a sort of ontology uh, that goes on uh, beyond you as an individual. Um, and it's this business of death that you really begin to uh, explore in detail in chapter two, whereas chapter one sort of lays out some of this history that we've been talking about, about the modern uh, ways in which death has been handled up till uh, recent decades in Japan. So you start off with an annual national convention of the ending business uh, in Tokyo. Um, tell us all about that uh, and, and how this represents some of these changes that we've been talking about. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Nathan. So it's called Endex, Ending Exhibit. I think it started maybe 2014. It took place in Tokyo Big Site um, on Odaiba. And it is a trip. I have been there, I think, four times. It is, it's a convention. And, but it feels, I mean, what's kind of interesting about it, and you put your finger, I mean, you were so, um, yeah, you were so eloquent in the way that you, you expressed that, that, yeah, this is a juncture that could be a crisis, but it also opens up the possibility of new forms of creativity and also new forms of business. I mean, this is kind of a new capitalist frontier. And the place is hopping with booths of various, you know, old style, uh, funeral parlors, old style crematoria, old style headstones, getting innovated, renovated, redesigned in all these interesting kind of ways. Of course, trying to draw business, trying to increase sales, but um, also trying to appeal to a consumer base that increasingly is looking for alternatives to the old model. And the old model was a family grave out on the countryside connected to a Buddhist um, uh, a Buddhist temple where you knew who was going to handle all this because he was your Buddhist priest. I mean, and so increasingly people are not parishioners anymore, or they're not a part of the parishioner system. So this is another part of, of what's happening in the death scene is the old reliance on Buddhism as, as you know, a death, you know, a, a death industry to supply the death industry. That's shifting gears too. 
And so, um, and so it's, it's really interesting to hear, to see all these different kinds of entrepreneurs. Some of them, again, are, you know, people who had inher- inherited their companies from their families. But you see a lot of youngish people here, you know, people in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, who are trying to find a new kind of career, or they're trying to find a new kind of vocation. There's something kind of pop cultural going on. They have contests. They have, um, yeah, I mean, they had a no con see contest, a mortician contest, see how quickly you can, you know, remove clothes from a corpse and put new clothes on and doing it in front of an audience that was staged like, you know, reality TV or something that was just kind, but it was, it was kind of wild, but at the same time, incredibly respectful. So one of the things that I think one of your questions asked me is like, what is different about all this? Because there's always been practitioners. There's always been people who you could call on to help you um, for a funeral. But some of this is you, you, you're, you've got to retain that sense of incredible respect, dignity for the dead. You have to show respect to, to the living, but you're also doing it in a way that now is like trying to be convenient, kind of cool, kind of edgy, um, the price is, you know, you want to make it affordable. You want to give options. Again, it's a marketplace. So you give, you can do it in purple. You could do it in pink. You can have flowers that look like Hello Kitty. So endless choices. Um, and it was both profound and kind of hilarious at the same time. I mean, that's the, the ending market is it's commercial, but it's not just commercial and it can be a little crass, but it's not just crass. And it can be incredibly respectful, but it's not just that either. It's also a business. So it's kind of all of that wrapped into one. And it's incredibly interesting. Reading your descriptions, I, I, I was left with the image of a sort of combination of the, the 2008 film Departures, which is kind of an homage to an old way of doing these things as it's sort of slipping away. Of course, you only do the homage once you're losing it, right? Um, that and like a skiji fish market uh, tuna show, you know, where they they take out the big knives and it, it, it I, I, you you've made it sound a little bit more serious than that. But I think there is that kind of playful um, show personship, if you will, uh, that 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 comes through in the way you've described it here. Um, I'll have to I'll have to see if I can revise that image in my head. Well, you know, Nathan, that's again, that's so that's so nicely put because. What I also discovered about the playfulness, because one of the first ones I went to, there was Pepper, you know, this humanoid, you know, robot performing the sutras, the Buddha sutras, as if a Buddhist priest. And I thought, what is this? And and the people who I was, you know, standing next to said, oh, it's pretty good. You know, yeah, that's pretty convincing. And so there's something that would seem to be playful, but then playfulness, I realized, does not necessarily mean that you're discounting um, the sacredness or the dignity that you should be, uh, you know, you should be also giving to the dead. So that also was just kind of interesting for me to realize play, and I don't know if play is the right word, but play can also be a part of attending to the dead in this moment of the 21st century. Um, And yeah, it's. Yeah, I think, I think that you've, you've, 
you know, touched on something interesting here, which is that play is sort of um, fundamental in, in to to any kind of late capitalist marketplace, right? There has to be some element of playfulness somewhere in that market, right? It serves someone, uh, and so it's it's in in that sense. I don't like the word inevitable, but it seems to me that it might be. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this well, is. If I could just add one final, yeah, final point to that. What I also found repeatedly interesting, um, another kind of one of my discoveries was that you might imagine that in the face of the old system of mortuary care and living, frankly, living a, in kind of a family union, as that increasingly falls apart, you might find that, you know, taking care of the dead is also just going to fall, fall apart. And there have been a couple people who have recommended that. You know, there is uh, a Japanese scholar who has written a couple books now, zero so, you know, zero funeral, who says, this is all anachronistic. We don't need, we don't need to bury the dead anymore. I mean, why are we doing that? Let's just get rid of it. And yet I found that that by, by and large, that's not happening. I mean, I think people don't really want to let it go. I mean, there is a clinging to something ritualistic even in the face of the old rituals falling apart. And as an anthropologist, of course, that's delightful to imagine back, back to the otherwise. So we don't want to just live physically, you know, biological lives that once, you know, once you die, it's all over. We want something otherwise. There's something beyond just the here and now because that feeds our imagination, that feeds our sense of hope, that feeds our, our dream life. And without that, maybe being human would be, you know, ontologically different. And I found that time and time again, even people who said, yeah, I mean, I remember interviewing this woman, single woman. She does have a child, but she said, I won't be buried with my child because my child is married to a man and she'll be, she'll be buried in that grave. So I have nowhere to go. So she bought an alternative burial plot. She thinks she's going to become nothing after death. Nonetheless, She's committed to doing something, you know. I mean, yeah, just, I think, yeah this, this is um, a, a sort of interesting segue into some of the things that you're looking at in chapter three, which is really about trying to, um, I guess, reestablish might be the right word, a kind of sociality, a communality of death. And you, this is uh, your first case study um, beyond the the sort of uh, the, the big show um, where you're looking at a, you know a number of things here but the the one I'd like to to talk about here is the nonprofit uh, ending center if you could tell us what that is and how um its voluntary community is tied to the notion of a, a sort of a new creation of uh dignified death yeah uh thanks yeah um it was started by Inoue Haruyo who um was a writer in the 1980s and um, her mother died prematurely, maybe about age 52. And they had no family grave for her mother to go into. Her father was a second son, so he wasn't allowed into his own family grave. And they didn't quite know what to do with the body. And I assume that they had her cremated, but it was that experience that was pretty traumatic for her that made her become interested in death and death practices. She went back and got a PhD in sociology. She considers herself a sociology a sociologist of life and death. And she became interested. She realized that the system 
you know, being reliant on a particular model of family. And when I say it's family-based, I, I also mean that that's a particular model. It's a, a particular patrilineal, pretty pat, patriarchal model of family. And she's a feminist. She said this itself creates disconnection, muenka, for a lot of people, women, but not only women, uh, men too. And she was interested in coming up with a different kind of model. And she, and she wasn't alone. She started talking to other people, including uh, a number of Buddhist priests and, and, and eventually came up with her own NPO nonprofit that's called Entin Center. She has two. One is on the outskirts of Tokyo in Machida. And it's, it's five different plots in, um, in a Buddhist cemetery, even though Ending Center itself is not affiliated with Buddhism. There's another one in Osaka. And the aim is to offer an alternative to the family model. So if you don't have a successor, you don't have, uh, if you don't have a family, or even if you do have a family, but you don't want to be bar- uh, buried in the family grave, you can have an alternative here. And so anyone, and it's free, free in the sense of you, it's free to anybody, provided you have the money to become a member. So, I mean, that's something else we can talk about. I mean, all of these models, I mean, a lot of these, most of these models still require that you have means to to pay for it. But if you become a member, then you're right. You become, you're not only purchasing a plot, you're becoming a member of Ending Center. And Ending Center now has a lot of, get-togethers, information sessions, workshops. And I went to a whole bunch doing my field works, which spanned, you know, about eight years. I, you know, went back every summer and I did various kinds of field work. I spent a lot of time at Ending Center. I went to a lot of these get-togethers. And people there call themselves Hakatomo, gray friends. And you're right, it's, it's a voluntary community. It's a community of, she calls it inclusive relationality. Ketsuin. She said it's not based on blood. It's relationality. It's relationality no longer based on blood and no longer based on where you reside, not just neighbors, or if you are fellow work workers. I mean, it used to be that there were, you know, corporate graves, company graves, but you're a voluntary member by joining up Ending Center and, um, and you get to know people who are going to be buried next to you after you die. So they're not going to take care of you. They're not going to do kuyo for you. So it's not like they're going to care for you, but they are going to, you are going to accompany one another in death and you get to know them before you die, which is kind of like extraordinary. So I remember, and they, they have now purchased, not purchased, one of their members left a house, which is very close to, to the grave plots. That's where they have a lot of their their get-togethers. So you'll be sitting in this house, and it's called One More Home. You're sitting in the house talking about various death-related things, looking out at where you're going to be buried, and you're forming these relations, which are flexible and pliable and stretchy. And um, So, yes, so that's kind of what Ending Center is. Yeah, and I, I was intrigued by uh, that because I I went to a uh, a Quaker school you know, uh, as a as a child, and, and we had uh, the meeting house uh, and the graveyard were visible from many of the classrooms. Uh, and one of our teachers uh, one day in class got a note, uh, and he looked at the note and he said, 
I think you'll appreciate this. I've I've just gotten confirmation of my grave plot. He sort of pointed out the pointed out the window. So I was I was definitely thinking that yeah, this is this is a this is a sort of uh, again I had this mental image that was very uh, uh, personal to me. But um, this so the ending center, uh, you know, it is it is creating a new kind of um, voluntary uh, community. How does that compare with some of the organizations, uh, companies um, and, and organizations that you look at in chapter four um, and the ways that they approach the question of self-death making? Great question. You know, it feels to me kind of like a spectrum. I mean, Ending Center calls itself a nonprofit, but, you know, and I don't, I mean, I don't think they're in operation to be profitable but they want to be self-sustaining. And so they charge a certain amount of money. And if you didn't have the means to pay, you wouldn't be able to, you know, you wouldn't be able to be buried there. And so there, there are increasing this shukasa, kind of the marketplace of ending this in Japan is, is diversifying in a lot of different directions. There are a lot of different kinds of places. So there are a lot of places now that are a hybrid between a Buddhist temple and a business. So there are a number of places now where it used to be that in order to, to be buried in the burial grounds of a Buddhist temple, you had to be a parishioner. You know, it's the Danka system. But increasingly, Buddhist temples are saying, well, you know, also, we we're not sustainable anymore because the number of parishioners is going down. So we're going to have a second tier. We're going to have a membership. And often they call it like a membership society. It's like a society. So it's another kind of kind of voluntary community. You can now be buried, not in the section for the family graves. We have a separate section. And, um, and what's also different about it is that if you're a Danka, if you go into a, a, a normal normal and conventional uh, grave, you have to pay annual fees. Or if you're a parishioner, you have to pay you know, various kinds of offerings every year. But in this new style of membership, it's usually a one-shot deal, one-shot membership fee. You pay for eternity. And so all, that also means that your remains are not going to be um, taken out if you don't pay the annual fees, which is happening, as I'm sure you know, all across the country. Increasingly, ancestral and family graves are getting abandoned because people have failed to pay the, the annual uh, maintenance fees. But in these new style arrangements, well, that becomes, you know, that doesn't become an issue because it's just a one-shot deal. But what also happens as part of the package is your some of your remains are going to be there, you have, you know, an ehi. You have some sort. You know, you're you're going to have the the tablet with your name on it, and um, also the Buddhist priest. And this is why it's a hybrid. The Buddhist priest is going to perform kuyo for you, and they say for eternity. So it's called a tai kuyo. So one of the questions I've heard some people say, well, that's all well and good, but what happens when this operation, you know, belly ups fifty years from now? Well, what's going to happen to all those dead? You know, but in any case, so those are a slightly different. So ending center is not Buddhist and they don't they don't offer a Tai Kuyo. That's not what they do. Um, but some of these arrangements are a little bit different. They do offer a Tai Kuyo. But some of these also have get togethers. They have a, sometimes they have 
choral groups. You can go and sing with people who you, you know, are going to be buried next to, or they have a Buddhist indoctrination seminar. You can find out about Buddhism, even if you're not Buddhist. Um, but I would imagine some people, maybe you just sign up for it and you never go to any of these get togethers. I mean, you're only really interested in your remains being taken care of. So I think there are a number of different kinds of more commercial based ones, but then there are also some that are more um, civic. So in Sanya, which is the old neighborhood for the day laborers, um, and day laborers are aging like everyone else's in Japan, um, an NPO called San Yukai started maybe eight years ago, nine years ago, did a fundraiser, GoFundMe, to come up with enough money to have a collective grave for for all for for any aging you know day labor who wants to go there. And I visited it, you know, I don't know, maybe five years ago. And the person who's taking me around said, you know, this is just wonderful because actually some of these guys don't even feel like they have a community while they're alive. I mean, they sleep out on the streets. And so now they can join a community after they die. And these are people who are estranged from their families. I mean, they don't, they don't, they might not even want their families to know when they're done, but they don't really want to be disconnected. They don't want to be a disconnected soul because the image that, you know, conjures up is, is of being hungry and being wandering and being um, asocial, non-social. And I think there was something like they had room for maybe 250 remains. And I've heard that they have started a second GoFundMe for a second one. And so that's kind of interesting. And I think there are starting to be a few municipal operations. One of the ones that I talk about in the book is in Yokosuka. Um, they don't really have quite something like this, but they're trying to come up with arrangements for people who otherwise would be stranded at death, a lonely dead. And they're trying to get them to sign up before they die so that they can make an arrangement with a local funeral company. And they're signing up local funeral companies so that they can be buried properly so that they won't wind up in the pauper's field in the section for the disconnected dead after they die. So those are kind of interesting other kinds of operations that are just beginning to emerge that aren't capitalistic. I mean, they're not based on money, being being able to fund yourself. Um, and so those are also incredibly interesting models that um, I'd like to stay on top of and, and watch and see, see how they bear fruition in the future. Mm -hmm. yeah, another of the uh, new types of business uh, that you cover uh, comes up in uh, part three of the book, uh, which is titled Departures, um, which begins with smell. And I know we'll talk a little bit about that uh, late, later after, after we finish talking about the book. But um, in this case, we're talking about the smell of death. Uh, and we're talking about the business of cleaning up the death alone, the kodokshi, um, these unmanaged, in that sense, disorderly deaths uh, of people who have lived alone and now die alone. And so it's not just a, so dying is, of course, not just the, the, the uh, state of being dead after one dies, but also that process of dying itself, which when that happens alone, that has its, its own implications, right? And so with these changes in the socioeconomic order, the family, the types of intimacy, people's locations, et cetera. Um, you have this new business of um, 
restoring order physically to the space in which the dead lived and then emotionally to any bereaved persons, even if they were unaware of the death and not living together. Um, and so this is also, uh, a, a, you know, as I said, it's a, it's a new industry. And, and can you tell us you know, when does this actually uh, come on the scene um, and what is it reflecting uh, about the, the changed world of this very intimate process of caring for the dead? Yeah. Yeah, that's great, Nathan. Um, yeah, exactly. So the materiality of death is one of the things that I'm really interested in. And these new, this kind of new genre of company, often called Ihinsuri Gaisha, you know, taking care of the remains of the dead, started around 2003. The first one was a company called Kipas, Keepers. And, um, and, all of shukatsu or the ending industry kind of started around 2000. I mean, a little bit before, but so it's really been about the past 20, 25 years that things have started escalating and building. And it feels almost like, again, this new frontier of, of, of capitalist entrepreneurship. And these companies, I mean, the guy who started it, a very, very interesting guy, uh, Yoshida, I mean, he inherited a moving company or he he started a moving company. I mean, he and a lot of these people are they're laborers, they're manual labor. He's a manual laborer. And he started a moving company, got another, he went in, in the business with his uncle and and he's just trying to, you know, kind of figure out the new edge, the new edge for him. And he saw an opportunity. I mean, how did he figure this out? Uh, I don't know. But he knew, well, people are busy. And um, and when somebody dies, I mean, not only the lonely dead, but when someone dies, if my mother dies and I'm busy, I'm a busy professor, I don't have time to really go into her house and clean up everything. Um, he said, well, you know, my company can help you. And I and and his 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 byline is we help you with your move to heaven. So it's also like, we're not just, you're not just taking care of your things, you know, we're, we're, it's a little bit more elevated than that. So what he added to this was a little bit more than what had preceded it. It was just the, the person who you would hire to haul out the stuff. We're going to, we're going to make this a little classier. We're going to show incredible respect and honor. We're really going to honor the things and the dead and the living in the process of doing this. So he started this company and one of the jobs that they also do, and they, and about 30% of their jobs, when I, when I interviewed him about six years ago, he said, then it was about 30% may go up about 30% are jobs that involve someone who's died alone. So if someone has died alone, and this is a phenomenon that's increasing, Kodokushi, uh, Koritsushi in Japan is someone's living alone, they're estranged from their family, they die, no one's checking in on them. And days, weeks, months later, there's an odor. So there's a smell. The landlord or the neighbors or someone, you know, walking by smells it, and there may be vermin out front also. Um, and then uh, the police will be called and they walk in, they discover the body, and the body is removed by the police. But unless um, the family will come up or unless there's kin who is willing to accept responsibility, then it will fall. Or even if it is kin, you know, someone has to then clean up, as you say, clean up the disorder. And I've become very interested in the whole notion of disorder. Uh, Mary Douglas, 
old anthropologist talked about, you know, matter out of place, which she, she spent a lot of time in her book, Purity and Danger, thinking about the danger of things out of place. And she said, well, the things out of place. I mean, they disturb the sociological order of the way things are supposed to be. So this kind of smell is also someone should have been back to the other there should have been others in there taking care of this guy and no one was there. And so now it smells and now it becomes a burden to everyone because the smell is unpleasant and neighbors don't like it. It decreases the property value in capitalistic oriented Japan. And someone has to restore the order so the property can be rented out again or sold. And so the neighbors can continue living in a neighborhood where the smell is restored to, um, to, uh, normal. And so these workers, that's part of their job. So they go in and it's called special cleanup. And they will go in with ozone machines and full body mask and they rip up the tatami and they clean up the walls and they restore the place to order. So yes, so part of the field work that I did was accompanying keepers. It was actually keepers. Yoshida-san was very, was very kind to me. He he couldn't understand why why I I think as a woman, aging woman would, would possibly want to go with his workers to the Genba, to the, the site. But I said, no, this is what an anthropologist does. So he says, well, okay. So I did it three times. And I went uh, on two jobs where there was actually a family and they had hired it for a, a parent who had died and they wanted the house cleaner. But the third time was the case of, of someone who had died a lonely death. And I, I followed the crew and it was it was it was pretty profound um it, taking care of this place the body wasn't there anymore but the smell certainly was and they had to clean up the whole um yeah so the materiality you're right so it's there's something about the materiality who handles this materiality mm-hmm. and how does materiality also embed encode the remains mm-hmm. was, problems, yeah. yeah i was reminded of um uh some work I had read uh about the sort of the idea of thing theory um that you know, thinking about material culture the idea that in a sense um we only notice the materiality of things when they're broken right and this ties in very nicely to this idea of disorder that you were talking about that the order is only visible in that sense it's only tangible um perceivable through the disorder. And it's important to be able to then restore that um, to its original proper state. Well, yeah, you know, Nathan, yeah, again, that's so that's so well put. And exactly because these people who die alone and they're noticed in the 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 stink of their decaying flesh. Why did no one notice them before? No one noticed that there was someone who wasn't appearing outside to pick up their newspaper. And so it's only noticed in the disorder of a smell is one of the kind of hardships that some people, I mean, there are some some interesting, you know, activists and theorists in Japan who are thinking, well, so we have to, we have to anticipate this. We have to do a better job taking care of our would-be lonely people so that they they don't die like this and they don't live like this and back to the sociality of a place like ending center you know uh people retire when they're 65 or older a little bit after and if they live until 85 or 90 that's a lot of years to fill up in your post productivity and spending time hanging out with other people who are in your same status even if it means you know spending time organizing 
the matters of your death is something that seems to be part of why this is taking off. It gives gives people something to do. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I want to um, move on to chapter six, where you continue uh, thinking about the treatment of the body post-mortem. Uh, you have four case studies that you deal with in the chapter. Um, for a number of reasons, I think it would probably be best to focus on just two of them, uh, the crematorium uh, and also the bone crusher, um, and how these treatments of human remains illustrate what you call the troubled border between human and waste. Yeah, thanks. So I only went to a crematorium once. Well, no, I was at, I, I actually went twice. And um you're you're right, you know, these these were things that I hadn't thought a lot about until I was faced with them. It was like, well, what does happen to the body when it when it undergoes cremation? And again, absolutely fascinating to see the the material recomposition or decomposition of the body as it goes through this this um you know, when it goes into the furnaces and the workers are there to literally rake uh, the remains and then the remains come out. And the temperature of cremation is a little bit lower in Japan than it is in other places because people, uh, and I think this goes back to kind of traditions, like to have some chunks of bones. In America, it's higher. People, you know, people are so, don't particularly want to see or touch the remains afterwards. Um, but in, in Japan, one of the other case studies I talk about in that chapter is, is Kotsuage is, is moving the bones that people actually will move some of these fragments as, as part of the intimacy of staying, staying with the body, even as it, it moves from, from a body to these remains. And so I think that's why the temperature is lower that, um, that people want to have these fra fragmentations, but there's always a remainder. That's one of the things that I talk about in that section, which I had been totally unaware of. And the remainder belongs to the crematorium. And so what happens to that remainder? And I, then I, one of my, what I discovered is that now some of those crematoria, if they're public and they own it, they can sell it. They can sell it for the metallic, you know, uh, a value. Some do, some don't. Um, apparently Yokohama will sell. Um, apparently Kyoto will not sell because they think it's not dignified. But one of the issues is how do you make the difference between what is just a remainder that is non-human and bones that are human. And that becomes this fine distinction. And one of the ways of making the distinction is that you grind up even further the remain. So you pulverize it even further. So apparently now in crematoria, you can decide how, to what degree do you want the remain? Um, again, something I was never aware of. And the further that you reduce the size, the more that it will by law not be considered human. And if it's not considered human, that becomes easier to dispose of it if you want to scatter ashes. So if you scatter ashes at sea, scatter ashes, and that's the only place where you can do it legally in Japan, is it's far better to do that if it's just teeny little, you know, remains. But then um, also, if you're going to move the remains from um, like an ancestral grave, uh, another another trend that is happening in Japan is moving graves. If you if you don't want just to abandon the the grave in the countryside, but you might want to move them from the countryside to an urban uh, columbarium, you want the the ashes to be further reduced so you can fit more of them into a small box. 
And so there's, so the materiality itself is kind of getting resized to fit new kinds of trends of depositing and disposing of the dead. Yeah, this was um, a particularly interesting uh, spot in the book for me, uh, in part because the first time that I went to Japan, which was in 1996 as a student, I did a homestay in an area um that had a crematorium uh you know not not that far away it was in the essentially the suburbs and um i could be misremembering this you know again it is 1996 um, and it's, that's a long time ago but um i i remember being told that uh the heated municipal pool next to the crematorium was actually that the, the part of the heat for the pool was the waste heat from the crematorium. Now, I, again, I could be wrong about this. I could be misremembering it. But again, thinking about that question of, of what is waste, who owns it, how it gets used, brought back those really interesting sort of you know, early memories of Japan for me. Um, and so I was absolutely fascinated by this question, which I think, as you say, it sort of goes unexamined. You know, how much of this is human legally? not how do we make that distinction who gets to decide um so that was really uh quite fascinating for me and i, I appreciated uh the, the sort of trip down <laughs> sort of a strange trip down memory lane there that's a wonderful uh, story i mean that 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 could be a wonderful short story yes i it's hard to say whether it would be a horror or a comedy or exactly what it would be but yes yeah um, so I want to uh, move on to the final chapter, uh, where we're actually returning to something that you you mentioned uh, early on, which is the automated delivery system columbaria, these sort of techno-futurist graves um, for a new way of uh, dealing with the uh, social and sort of spatial changes uh, in contemporary Japan and moving forward um, and the changed relationship of the living and the dead and how the dead and how the living think about their own future deaths. So I really liked the way that you described them as, and I want to quote you here, a way of mass housing the dead in a manner that maintains the symbolism of the traditional grave by using a just-in-time mechanism that allows thousands to share it if only prosthetically. And what I like about this not only is that it's descriptive, um, and but that it's, I think, emblematic of the fact that you're not at all negative about this system, as far as I can tell, um, as a development in an, an ontology of care and thinking about death. Uh, whereas I think it could be very easy to be sort of techno-pessimist, if that makes sense, uh, about this. That doesn't seem to be where you landed on this. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. I'm glad that you picked up on that and appreciate it. And you're you're absolutely right that yeah, at first blush, it seems kind of horrific. I mean, back to you know, would 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 your story be a you know a horror story or would it be you know a farce? Or and when I first heard about these, I thought, are you are you kidding me? You know, this sounds boy. I mean, the, the we've gotten to this, and then I went to visit a couple. And they were lovely. They were both designed by preeminent Japanese architects. Um, they were, you know, they had that delicacy, delicacy of, you know, Zen aesthetics. Um, and the warehouse was hidden. You know, if your remains would be there, um, the part of the warehouse is not usually shown to um to to users I mean, you wouldn't see that you only see the nice part and so back to 
you know, the difference between what is material and what's, you know, what's human. Um, and, and so it, it didn't feel, it didn't feel bad. It felt warm. The, the person who was the manager who was showing me around obviously thought deeply and, and caringly about the dead who were inhabiting his, you know, the place that he was running. And so I started to kind of think about it and I started to think about, yeah, so the, the, the operation for all the ones that I've gone to, and I've gone to a couple more now, um, is that the, the, the remains go into one part, kind of like a warehouse, like an Amazon warehouse. I mean, really like an Amazon warehouse, but then there are so-called traditional graves and in Sanichi uh, Dani, uh, which is the one that I talk about mainly in the book, um, there are only six. There are only six. And um, so if, if, if I were to go visit my mother and I would go visit her and I put the prayer card down on, on the screen in, in the lobby, within 40 seconds, her remains are going to go by this automated conveyor system from the warehouse and they will go to one of the graves and her, there's a box and her name is at the end. So the box, the name will be there by the time I get there. And if I have also, you know, done, you know, a screen, I have, you know, I have her image to the side, there's a screen, you know, and I can see her image and maybe I put some memories there. She's all ready for me. And the incense is electronically burning and there are fresh flowers and it's all neat. Like you're supposed to keep uh, a grave neat. And I pray when I visit her and then when I'm done, I press a button and her ashes will be removed and returned. And now it will be emptied and ready for the next. So it's a revolving door and it's just a time. Her ashes aren't gonna be there until I get there and then just a time they scoot there. And the conveyor system was built by uh, one of the companies that did, you know, the Toyota just-in-time conveyor belts that made Japan so successful in their automobile industry, so, so globally, um, you know, competitive, which I found incredibly interesting. That so now it's you know the death industry. But to your question, and and I call it so so if so if you have a visitor, it's just a little bit of a variation of the traditional system. But what happens if you don't have a visitor? So for all those people who go in there and they're never going to make it to the grave, they're just going to stay in the storage unit. And so it's like, it's almost like prosthetically, the whole contraption is, is doing, you know, is grieving for you, but that sounds like techno. So it's technology now. And you're right that rather than being horrified, I kind of think, you know, the alternative, because there's such a precarity and such a scarcity of care. The alternative is that these people then would become abandoned souls. They wouldn't, they'd, ha they'd have nothing. And so that is the alternative. The alternative isn't that, oh, now everyone is going to get it. And so they're going to get married and they're going to have successors and the old system is going to prevail. I mean, that's ludicrous. And that's kind of what the Japanese government thinks. So yeah, our population is decreasing. Oh yeah, birth rate is down. Oh, let's incentivize women and men to have more kids. Well, none of these policies are working. The angel, one of them is called the angel plan. There are no angels that are helping, you know, this happen because economically and for other reasons, it's, it's not appealing. It's not practical. I mean, a lot of people are choosing not to do it for very practical reasons. So that's not going to, the family system's not going to, you know, revive. It's not going to take over mortuary care. So I find this kind of innovative, 
And um, yeah, and and I also don't know if this is the end spot. I mean, I think that this is in transition. I mean, maybe something else will happen. There will be, or maybe people will realize back to the materiality, maybe we don't have to hold on to any remains at all. Maybe we can just digitalize and there's some digital, you know, alternatives now too. You don't hold on to any of the remains, but you keep a digital, you know, image alive for whomever might want to, you know. Yeah, I think this is um, one of the things that uh, I appreciated about the approach that you took in the book was this sort of anthropological pragmatism uh, to the to the whole, you know, what what could be a very sort of troubling and disturbing kind of uh, topic. Um, there's an appropriate amount of of play and hope and all these things we've been talking about, innovation and imagination, um, but also having spent uh, near, nearly an hour with all of these memento mori, uh, I do want to be respectful of the limited time that all of us have here. Uh, and um, so I wanted to, to jump back to something we touched on a little bit earlier, uh, which was the smell of death, because uh, before we got on uh, the recording here, uh, full disclosure, we were talking about a recent trip that you had uh, to my neighborhood here in uh, in Norway. You were at an olfactory studies conference, I hear. Um, and so obviously this is something you're still thinking about. And I wonder if you could tell us uh, about just sort of more generally what it is uh, that you're working on these days now that the book is out. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. Yeah, so I was, um, I was thinking about the smell of death mainly because of lonely death because of what I what I spoke about. I was just so struck in doing field work about how often I would hear about the smell. I mean, I read a lot of accounts, saw a lot of news shows, even went to some artist, you know, exhibits about lonely death. And almost without fail, um, smell would be mentioned. Smell is what alerted outsiders to the fact that there was a corpse um, that had been you know left to decompose on its own inside and i became interested in what kind of smell is that you know it's a particular kind of smell and there are words for this in japanese but it also struck me is that it's also a sociological kind of smell it's kind of the smell of of not having an other back to the other and otherwise of not having another to care for you and i thought i was thinking about that smell and so with a colleague of mine, Hannah Gould, who has also been working on kind of the materiality of new death practices in Japan, and she also has a book coming out momentarily by University of Chicago Press, uh, When Death Falls Apart, which is wonderful. We, we are co-authoring an article about the smell of death. I'm thinking about the, the unsocial smell of dying alone. And she's thinking about new forms of incense that have started getting marketed, um, particularly post-COVID, and new kinds of fashions. She says it's not just the old traditional kinds of incense. She says now, sometimes it's the incense that the dead person, it smells that the, the deceased like, she said her, she, she's married to a Japanese man, and her father-in-law says when they buried his father-in-law, that when they buried her father-in-law, they did so with coffee incense and beer incense because he liked coffee and beer. And we were laughing about, well, so that, so that's interesting that the trends of, of how you smell and how you smell with and for the dead are also changing. And so that's one of the things that I've just been 
thinking about what, what are smells and is there a smell of life? Is there a smell of death? Um, and how does sociality play into that? And your question about where, where, where am I now, now that the book is done, what, what am I exploring? I'm kind of exploring, um, these issues outside of the context of Japan, where else in places like Norway and Denmark, I'm going to Amsterdam pretty soon and to Scotland. I'm talking to other people who are working with this and trying to see how other places, I mean, I was just talking to a doula, you know, kind of a, something like a midwife, a death doula here in North Carolina, where I live. And she says, there's an organization locally called no one dies alone. I thought, Oh, I didn't even know about that. And she said, it's a volunteer based people of people who go sit with someone who has no one else, people who have no one else to sit with them. There's an organization in Amsterdam called the lonely funeral. And for over 10 years, people who have no one else to apparently there when you die alone, they put the municipality puts on a funeral. Poets now have been stepping up to the plate to craft a customized poem for the lonely who die. And there, it's called Lonely Funeral. I mean, just kind of fascinating. So this is kind of what I'm interested in is trying to think about both kind of ontologically and and, and also kind of ethically, what are the other responses and who is assuming responsibility for dead who don't have family or don't have kin or don't have the wherewithal to manage, uh, you know, a curated uh, funeral for themselves, who's, who is, is taking care of them. And, and I find that, that issue to be pressing. I mean, that's kind of a pressing issue because there's so many living um, who are struggling with life. You know, it, I think uh, to think about how we care for the dead also reflects on how we care for the living. So that's kind of what I'm interested in doing. Well, that's fascinating. And I will definitely be uh, looking forward to first the article uh, and then, uh, you know, as this uh, research progresses and develops beyond Japan, uh, to hearing more from you about that. Uh, but for now, I do want to thank you uh, for making the time with, to talk with us today and take care. Thank you so much, Nathan. I've enjoyed this.